BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we show you how to decode scientific studies and spot bad science by digging deep into the tools and skills you need to be an educated consumer of scientific information. Are you tired of seeing seemingly outrageous studies published in the news only to see the exact opposite published a week later? What makes scientific research useful and valid? How can you as a non-scientist, read and understand scientific information in a simple and straightforward way that can help you get closer to the truth and then apply those lessons to your life. We discuss this and much more with our guest, Dr. Brian Nosick. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide, and it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. 
be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. In our previous episode, we discussed real-life inception with former bank robber turned neuroscientist. Is it possible to plant ideas in your head? Are your memories an accurate reflection of past reality? Can you change and mold your memories to be different? We open the door on human irrationality and explore why and how we make bad decisions and what you can do to make small changes that will create a big impact in your life and much more with our guest, Moran Surf. Now for our interview with Brian. Today, we have another unique guest on the show. Dr. Brian Nosick. Brian is the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science and a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. He's led the Reproducibility Project, which involved leading some 270 of his peers to reproduce 100 published psychology studies to see if they could actually reproduce the results. This work shed light on some of the publication bias in science and psychology today. Brian, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. So I'd love to start out with kind of a bizarre question, but does science show that ESP is real? Well, well, it could show that if in fact it were real, but the overwhelming amount of evidence to date is not very encouraging about the reality of ESP. But I presume that you bring that up because of a paper that is a very notable paper in what has been characterized as the reproducibility crisis by a fellow named Daryl Bem. And Daryl is, for background, a brilliant social psychologist, super creative, has a a long history uh, of doing really interesting and proposing unconventional ideas about different uh, psychological phenomena. Uh, And he's now an emeritus professor at Cornell. And in 2011, he published a paper in the most prominent journal in social psychology. It's called JPSP, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, that had, as I recall, nine experiments that investigated different forms of ESP. Eight of them showed evidence consistent with the idea that people could predict things that were going to happen in the or things that happen in the future influenced people's behavior in the present. And this retroactive influence seemed to suggest across a bunch of studies that in fact ESP is true. And of course, the readers of this journal who are very serious scientists and take the evidence that comes out of the journal very seriously said, how is it possible that this appeared in our journal? This is ridiculous. ESP isn't true. And the editors wrote an editorial attached to this paper because they knew it would be extremely controversial. And the editorial basically said, we got this paper. We didn't really believe it. But Daryl, as a person to take seriously, we know he's an honest fellow. And we sent it out to reviewers. And those reviewers, all serious scientists, reviewed it. And collectively, we saw that This paper follows the rules of science. It did the experiments in the way that we expect experiments to be done. It reports the results in the way that we expect results to be reported. And yeah, the conclusion is super challenging, but there are nine experiments. So we felt like we had to publish it. It followed all the rules and there it is. And of course, that explanation was not sufficiently reassuring to the the researchers uh, that were reading the paper. And what ultimately it produced was this come to evidence moment in the field of two possibilities. 
the one possibility is that Daryl's right. Now we have to believe in ESP. All these experiments show this evidence. Here we go. Versus the other possibility, which is, well, he followed the rules of science to get this result. So maybe the rules are wrong. If we can't accept the conclusion as possibly being true, then we have to question how it is that he got the evidence. And most of the methodologists and people that were paying close attention to this debate opted for the latter, that really what this study has shown us is that there is something wrong with the rules and we need to start to question how it is that we got there. And so I, I can go right into those, or if you want to ask some follow-ups on the context, I'm happy to, happy to address that. Yeah. So I want to dig into this a little bit more. What does that mean? Is something wrong with the rules and sort of what are the implications of that? Yeah. So what are these underlying rules that led to this paper uh, being published? Well, the, by and large, they are the rules for what makes research publishable rather than what makes research accurate. So what makes research publishable is an important one because scientists advance in their careers by publishing things. Publication is the currency of advancement in science. So as a in my lab, my, me and the other collaborators that I have, we need to publish the results of our work in order to get a job, keep our jobs, advance in our careers. And we try to publish it in the most prestigious outlets that we can. But not all the research that we do gets published. And some of it is more publishable than other things. And so the kinds of things that are more publishable are finding a novel result rather than repeating a result that someone else has found, finding a neat and tidy story that explains all the things sort of fit together rather than all this sort of competing evidence and things that are uncertain, and also finding a positive result, finding that this intervention influences this outcome. This new idea is related to this other thing rather than finding negative results. These two things aren't related at all or doing this doesn't help you live a better life. Those are boring results, right? Whereas positive results actually find information, connections between things that people might do something with. So a novel, positive, tidy story is a more publishable unit. In fact, it is something that we aspire to, right? I am trying to find new evidence about things and I'm trying to get great explanations for how it is that evidence occurred, why it is that that occurred. And so we are striving for novel, positive, tidy stories, but science is usually asking questions about things that we don't understand yet. And so getting that nice and clean story is very hard. We get a lot of false starts. We get a lot of evidence that doesn't quite fit together. It's messy and it takes a long time to get to a conclusion that where everything is tied together in a nice bow. So that BEM article had a positive result. We found evidence for ESP. It had, it was novel. You found evidence for ESP and it was clean and tidy. Lots of experiments, all done in different ways, all with apparent, you know, good evidence showed that this hangs together. So in that very general sense, it provided a very publishable unit. And now you might say, well, wait a second, but what about the actual methodology, right? That's really where it matters. Novel, positive, clean, that's fine. But, but surely he must have messed up the methodology. And in one sense, yes, of course you would think, yeah, that the methodology is messed up. But in another sense, the way that he did the research also followed what researchers understand as relatively ordinary practice. 
and that we now understand in retrospect as being questionable research practices, practices that could lead us astray to find things that aren't actually true findings. So a couple of examples of that. If I'm doing a study and I collect, say I I start the study with 20 participants and then I look at the data and say, am I finding a relationship? Are these 20, the the 10 participants that I gave the treatment to, are they doing better than the 10 participants that I didn't give the treatment to? And if I find a little bit of evidence, but it's not quite enough to be considered reliable evidence, then maybe I'll add a few more participants and then I'll check again. Then maybe I'll add a few more participants and check again. If I do that iteratively, I might eventually arrive at sufficient amount of evidence. And there is a heuristic that scientists use often for determining whether they have reliable evidence called null hypothesis significance testing. And the the common phrase is you want a p-value less than 0.05. And what that means in general terms is that the evidence that you observe is unlikely to observe less than 5% of the time, 0.05, would you observe this evidence if there was no relationship between these two variables you were looking at, or there was no impact of the treatment? So if it's unlikely to have occurred, then we'd say, well, maybe this didn't happen by chance. Maybe it's because there actually is uh, some detectable evidence there. And so using that heuristic of needing to get a p-value less than 0.05, If I am iteratively going back to get more participants to try to get my data to look uh, like that, then what I am inadvertently doing and without realizing it is increasing my chances of detecting some evidence because I keep checking the evidence, but simultaneously increasing the chance that I'm fooling myself, that I'm more likely to actually detect evidence accidentally than in reality. I might see it by chance when there isn't actually evidence there. Another thing that we might do is I might analyze the data a bunch of different ways. So, yeah, I'm looking for whether this particular intervention made it more likely to see evidence for ESP. But if I have three different outcomes that could have been affected by ESP, then what do I analyze? Well, I could analyze all three of them. I could analyze all three of them together. I could analyze them one at a time. If I saw evidence in one of them but not the other two, would I take that seriously as evidence? All of those choices, that discretion that I have for how it is I analyze the data and then interpret those different outcomes, gives me more chance to leverage chance, to see things that are there that aren't actually there. And all of this discretion of how I analyze the data, how I choose whether to collect more data, what I do with the data, that discretion is flexibility that increases the likelihood of of fooling myself. And the reason that it increases the likelihood of fooling myself is that science deals in uncertainty. We are trying to make an estimate of whether there is a relationship there. And so we use these statistics like p-values to try to estimate unlikelihood. But those p-values lose their meaning once we have many different ways we can look at the evidence, once we're making choices by looking at the evidence for what we take seriously and what we don't. And so that's the real lesson that came out of the BEM paper and and other uh, issues like it to suggest that maybe not just for ESP, but maybe for all the things that we study, are we finding evidence because we're employing lots of flexibility, right? Because I have a stake in my outcomes, right? I need those novel results, those positive results, those neat and tidy stories, 
then am I inadvertently, without even realizing it, using flexibility in how I analyze my data, which of my studies I report, what things end up in the paper that might make the paper more publishable, but simultaneously make that paper less credible. So to kind of put this in in layman's terms, many scientific studies, and we'll get into kind of the more broad implications of this, but the ESP papers are a good sort of starting point or example. Many scientific studies though they sort of meet the criteria for academic publishing, may actually be factually incorrect. And one of the primary reasons is is that researchers can not only have sort of an incentive to only publish studies that have sort of a positive result or show some kind of finding, and so the, the studies that never see that sort of just go away, but also the fact that they can arbitrarily kind of increase study size. And if they increase it and it happens to show a result, then they publish it. And if they increase and nothing happens, then we sort of never hear about that study. Is that a correct kind of description? Yeah, that's right. It's two different factors. One is selective reporting of studies. So I do lots of studies and I only tell you about a subset, the subset that look better for my phenomenon. And a second, which is selective reporting of analyses of ways that I looked at the data because I have lots of discretion of how it is I look at the data. And a key point with both of these is that it doesn't need to be done deliberately, right? So we could have a very uh, negative view of this as sort of fraudulent behavior. Scientists are just doing this cynically. I'm going to take data, massage it until it looks in the way that I need it to look for publication, and then I'm going to publish it. My experience with this, even direct experience with it, is that these factors are much more frequently happening when they occur without intention. That really, I'm just in that mode of discovery. I'm trying to figure it out, and I'm not recognizing how my own reasoning is influencing or biasing my judgment about the evidence that I'm gathering. And that makes it that much more of a challenging problem to solve. It isn't a matter of finding people who are willing to cheat. It's a matter of figuring out how our ordinary biases of human reasoning might decrease the credibility of the evidence that we produce. So ESP is not real, even though there might be some scientific studies that kind of seemed to validate it. But what does this have to do or what are the implications for broader science of psychology? Yeah, and this is even broader than psychology, but is potentially a factor for all scientific investigation. And that is that the fact that researchers have uh, outcome, they need particular outcomes to advance their careers, and the fact that they have flexibility in how it is they conduct the research and report that research, what gets reported, put, creates a conflict of interest, right? The conflict of interest for me as a scientist is that I need certain kind of outcomes to advance my career, and I have choices I can make that you don't see in the paper of how it is I get those results. And so that puts that conflict in that what's good for me and what's good for science may not be the same thing, right? What's good for science is trying to, as accurately as possible, provide uh, clarity about what the evidence suggests and doesn't suggest. And so that challenge is a pervasive challenge, not just for ESP research, but for all research, because all scientists also have to maintain uh, their careers, also have stakes in the hypotheses or theories that they have themselves have been involved in uh, previously, also are just trying to do exciting, interesting work because like that's I'm, I'm curious, I'm trying to figure stuff out. And so the exploration, the discovery process, all of those are very good behaviors in trying to push out the boundaries of knowledge. 
The challenge is how is it that we as scientists reason while doing the science? And so there are a few different barriers that are hard, uh, there are a few different sort of reasoning biases that create challenges for doing the science well. And these are reasoning challenges that don't apply to scientists, they apply to humans. And they are pervasive in how it is we reason about evidence. So one of those is confirmation bias, right? So if I have an idea in advance, right, I'm, I'm usually doing the study for some reason. I have some idea about how I think the world works. I am more likely to look for evidence that is consistent with my initial hypothesis rather than look for evidence and take it seriously for that's against my hypothesis. I'm trying to confirm the view of the world that I have already. And this is pervasive, right? This is true in partisan politics. It's true in everyday reasoning. It's true in just general practice. Confirmation bias is a pervasive phenomenon. A second uh, bias that's very relevant in the research context is hindsight bias. And that's once I see what the results were, I may, looking at my data in different ways, I may convince myself that that's what I thought I was going to get at the outset. So I, I have this hindsight bias of, oh, I knew it all along. This is how I knew it was going to come out. And the reason that that is a challenge is because we're dealing in a world of uncertainty, right? And if we are deriving our confidence in results after we see what those results are to say what we anticipated, then we are playing with those tools of statistical inference that we have. And we're increasing the likelihood that we're fooling ourselves uh, with those outcomes. And then a third area of, of reasoning bias is outcome bias. We just get focused on the outcomes that we see uh, and ignore the other evidence that might be contradictory to those observed outcomes. So all of those sort of can play into how it is that we are reasoning about the evidence as we obtain it and interfere with the quality of the scientific process to get to credible evidence at the end. So you started kind of uh, uncovering this phenomenon and then took some very concrete action to further investigate. Tell the listeners a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the, these, all of these things that I'm describing uh, have been well understood in theory for, for a long time. They certainly aren't things that I generated. There, lots of methodologists have talked about these potential biases in reasoning and the challenges in methodology and statistical practice. What was a strong debate around the time of that BEM paper in psychology and for other reasons as well was to what extent are these problems actually manifesting in influencing the quality of research evidence? Like, do we actually have a problem? Is there evidence in the journals besides this paper about ESP that is less credible than it seems to be? And it was almost entirely a theoretical debate because there wasn't systematic evidence about the quality of evidence. So we thought, well, the best thing we can do as scientists is study this like a scientific question a meta science question, right? So let's do some science on science and see if we have challenges with reproducing the evidence that's in published research, published journals. So we this became a community-based project. 270 different researchers contributed to a project that became known as the Reproducibility Project in Psychology, where we took a sample of 100 studies and we Try, got the original methods and materials and designed experiments to redo what was published in the literature already to see if we could find similar evidence as was already published. And across those 100 studies, 
we found evidence consistent with the original phenomenon in about 40% or less of them. So there are published results, and we weren't able to reproduce the findings effectively for about 60% of them. And the effect sizes, how strong an effect, the effect of that treatment on some outcome or the relationship between two variables, the, that effect size was about half the magnitude in the replications as it was in the original studies. So in, the, in two different ways of thinking about replication, the replication evidence was a lot weaker than the original evidence. Now, one tempting conclusion with that is to say that, well, 60% or more of the, of the original literature, of the psychological literature is just wrong. It's wrong. And that's why we didn't reproduce the evidence. And that's one possible interpretation, but it's not the only <laughs> possible interpretation, right? It could also be that the replications were screwed up, that we just did a terrible job of trying to reproduce uh, those original studies. And the original studies are correct. The, the replications are wrong. That is possible. And of course, we tried to take every effort that we could to minimize that because that'd be a really boring reason to fail to reproduce findings. And so we got the original materials. We sent the designs to the original authors for feedback. We did high-powered designs that maximized chances to detect the phenomenon based on the effect size reported in the original study. So a lot, And we, we did all of this transparently. All of the methods and materials are posted on the OSF, this infrastructure that makes it easy for researchers to make their research transparent. We registered the designs in advance. So we committed to this is what the design is and this is how we're going to analyze our data before we uh, observe the outcomes. So all of those precautionary steps were trying to maximize the quality of the research to minimize the chance that the replications were wrong somehow, messed up somehow. But all of those precautions don't eliminate that entirely as a possibility. But then there's a third outcome, potential reason that the replications were different than the original results, which is also super interesting. And that is that both are correct. Both are correct. Well, it could be both are correct because it could be that for that particular phenomenon, the original result found evidence for it under the circumstances of that original study with the sample that it was conducted with in the setting that it was conducted. And the replication found no evidence for that phenomenon, but because of the sample that it was conducted in or the setting it was or subtle changes that happened in the way the methodology was administered to that sample. And the real challenge in science, and this is not just for this project, this is for science generally, is that we have no definitive evidence for any one of these three explanations. The original was correct the, and the replication was wrong. The original was wrong and the replication was correct or that both are correct in some way. And we just don't yet know what is the factors that explain why it is it, that phenomenon occurs in one condition and not in the other. So all of that is to suggest that science about science is also like science. It's a process of uncertainty reduction. We got a dramatic finding in the sense of failure to reproduce about 60% of the sample of published results. And what that spawned was not a conclusion of how much of the research literature we should trust or not, but rather a question that demanded more research of saying, wow, reproducing original evidence seems to be harder than we thought it might be. Why might that be? And so now there is a very substantial community of research happening to try to investigate different explanations for why we might see these effects in some cases and not in others. What, what factors might explain why reproducibility is challenging? 
And so, for example, we have a number of other large-scale replication projects. We call them the many labs projects, where we take the same research finding and protocol for how it is you got that finding and have dozens of labs run the exact same study. And so the idea with those studies is, well, if it is something special about the sample or the setting that it's conducted in, then maybe if we collect the data in California and Wyoming and Mexico and India and Botswana and China, then maybe we will see that in some cases that phenomenon is observed. In other cases, it's not observed, that it varies substantially depending on that sample. And that'd be super useful to know to start to get a handle on how it is and when it is different findings occur and when they don't. And so that now sort of burgeoning industry of trying to understand reproducibility is helping the field come to grips with the challenge of reproducing evidence and the opportunity that trying to reproduce evidence has for better understanding the phenomena that we're studying, right? It's really useful to know that this particular weight loss approach, well, the original study worked in, you know, 18 to 28-year-olds. Turns out in another sampling strategy with people who are 40 plus, it doesn't work. Oh, well, that's useful to know, especially if both of those findings are reproducible. And so the act of replication can be generative in helping to refine understanding of the phenomenon, even under conditions where it ends up showing that the original phenomenon wasn't true at all. And I think you made a really interesting point and kind of a key insight, which is that once the, the reproducibility project once you kind of got the conclusions of that, it, it was not this definitive conclusion that, okay, these studies were wrong, but rather it opened up another question. And I think that really highlights the power and also kind of the resilience of the scientific method and the scientific kind of way of thinking that it's not just about, okay, we found new evidence, this is our conclusion, but rather the science about science, as you called it, is really more of a process of reducing uncertainty. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that we have models about how we think the world works, right? And that's true of scientists, it's true of people, right? We have ways that we think the world works. And what a scientific approach to accumulating evidence is about is testing those models with the recognition that every single one of those models is wrong in some way. We are fundamentally wrong in some critical ways about how we think the world works. That has to be true. Because models are simplifications of a very complex reality. And so the way that science makes progress is by finding the imperfections in the models, in the explanations that we have for reality now, by constantly confronting those models with new evidence. And sometimes the models survive and those become more and more robust, right? The theory of evolution is a super robust model of the origin of species because it's been confronted so many times in so many different ways that has a very strong basis of evidence for the manner in which it describes how species came to be. Other models, when they get confronted, you know, dissipate very quickly and, and don't survive uh, that. But in all cases, there's always uncertainty. There's no definitiveness in how it is that in any one study of anything, right? The definitiveness that we have in terms of claims about science comes with accumulation of evidence over time, and that can proceed very slowly. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. 
VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So for, for somebody who's listening, I mean, we've been kind of getting into the weeds of, you know, null hypothesis, significance testing, and, and kind of talking really in detail about how scientific studies are conducted and, and what some of the flaws in that methodology can be. For someone who's a listener, kind of an ordinary average person, and I include myself in this, definitely not a scientist, you know, we're confronted every day with so many headlines of, you know, scientific studies with completely conflicting and different conclusions in many cases how can we determine if something is scientifically valid or how can we think more effectively about kind of analyzing and consuming information that is presented to us as being scientific? Yeah, this is a really important question and and I wish that there was a simple answer to it because it is hard. It's hard even for the scientists that are reading the original reports, let alone the summaries of that that are, are written for broader consumption. But there are at least a few general things that I think are worth paying attention to in the consuming of evidence. The first is anytime you see definitive language, be skeptical of it. <laughs> uh, that just as a general rule for anything reporting on new research, the sense of this causes that is evidence to sort of say, hang on a second. How do you get to that strong of a conclusion, right? Red wine is good for you. Red wine is bad for you. Oh, wait a second, right? Because you do get lots of conflicting evidence. So that's one is just to watch out for definitiveness in general. A second 
is to, when reading an article, is to pay attention to things that are often mentioned in passing, if they're mentioned at all, but are actually pretty important indicators of how seriously one should take the evidence, right? So one simple example is the sample size. So here's a new exercise regimen that we think will make people more fit faster. The study was conducted on 11 people and blah, 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 right? And it just whizzes by 11. And you say, hang on a second, wait, 11? 11 people? That, so this is an exercise regimen that you're now selling at, at scale to millions, and the evidence is based on 11 people? Maybe we should look at that a little closer. Is that enough people actually to make that strong a conclusion? Where did those 11 people come from? So the subtleties of that are important, and they're often in articles if they're written by science journalists because they know they should report that kind of thing, but they're often also glossed over. The a related question is, does the write-up of the story about that research talk about multiple studies or is it characterizing this one latest paper, right? This new finding and stories that are about the aggregation of evidence, right? Hundreds of studies have now been conducted and they converge to a conclusion that X, Y, and Z. That's a nice signal for taking seriously this idea of uncertainty reduction through accumulation of evidence. And I want to hop in and just really quickly ask, is that the same thing as a meta study? Because I've heard or read that meta studies are often sort of better scientific quality than individual studies. So I just want to clarify or kind of add that in or ask, is that the same as meta studies or those different? Could you kind of explain the two? Yeah. So a meta study or a meta analysis which is an aggregation of many different studies into what do they cumulatively suggest is an important part of the research process of after all this research has been done, what can we gather about the relationship between coffee consumption and cancer? All right, well, let's look at every study that's ever been done that had measured coffee consumption and also measured uh, key cancer outcomes and put all the evidence together to have a much more precise conclusion, right? That's a meta-analysis. And those are for that process of stronger precision and stronger interpretation of the evidence. Meta-analysis doesn't solve everything, but it is a step in the right direction. The part that it doesn't solve is the problem that we talked about earlier, which is if I am a researcher who studies the relationship between coffee consumption and cancer, and I did 100 studies and I shared with you uh, or published the eight that found a relationship and ignored the 92 that didn't and just left them in my file drawer, then the published literature is biased, right? It's biased for positive evidence and the meta-analysis won't be successful in characterizing the overall evidence unless the meta-analyst finds out about those 92 that I have hidden away in my lab. So effective meta-analysis requires some of the solutions to the reproducibility challenges that we work on here at the Center for Open Science. But yes, you're, you are correct that meta-analysis is a good signal for quality of evidence in, in reporting. An obvious challenge for science journalists is that meta-analyses don't tend to be very newsworthy in the sense that science accumulates slow but news is about what's happening right now. What's the new thing? Is it newsworthy? So there is a, a challenge of goals of getting eyeballs is really easier with that brand new, sexy, exciting study rather than, okay, over the last 50 years, we've studied this lots and lots of times, and now we finally are willing to say X. Less exciting. But that is the reality uh, of quality of evidence. 
So I, I kind of interrupted just because I really wanted to get to that point about meta studies and understand how they kind of fit into the puzzle. But are there any other keys? You know, you talked about sort of watching out for definitive conclusions, sample size, obviously very important. Are there any other things that you think about or look at that we as sort of non-scientists can use as sort of tools to determine quality of evidence? Yeah. So when I'm reading a popular press story about a research finding, an additional thing that I look at short of actually trying to look up the original paper is whether the story and the researchers, if they are protagonists in the, in the story, whether there is doubt expressed. So rather than just singing the praises of the finding, does the story get into how the research finding could be wrong? What are the things that are unknown? What needs to be studied next to improve confidence in this? If those elements are part of the story, it's a really good signal to me of for taking it seriously, that they are actively engaged in questioning their own result and have identified those limitations for me, the reader, to be able to calibrate how confident I am in the result that they are putting forward. That's also can be a challenging thing for science journalists to write about, but I think it's a real important one for effective scientific communication to help to unpack for the reader the process of discovery, that it isn't just about the outcome. The outcomes are obviously important because those have implications, but the confidence in those outcomes is dependent on the process, how it is we got to those outcomes. And so I think real good science journalism is effective at giving the reader some insight into the process. How did they get there? Those 11 participants, uh, yes, that was a small sample, but here's why we should take it seriously from those 11. But also then, here's what we need to do next. And here's what the researchers say are ways that we might not see this phenomenon working in this context or that context. And so that's what the next research is about. That way, as a reader, I can say, oh, okay, well, that, that exercise regimen does sound really interesting. I might try it, but I'm not ready to invest $3,000 in it. Instead, I want to go try it out and see what happens and then look at what the evidence suggests the next time around. So I think that gets into, you know, the scientific process and the scientific method. You know, we touched on this and you talked a little bit about this idea that confronting your own ideas and your own models of reality is one of the keys to building a stronger understanding the world and ultimately moving towards truth. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And based on, you know, kind of now that we've uncovered some of these challenges with reproducibility, you know, where do we go from here? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And because these are challenges of ordinary reasoning, how it is we understand the world as humans, the solutions are not about making demands that all of it be accurate but rather paying attention to the incentives that drive the researcher's behavior, the need to get published, and designing solutions that are behavioral solutions, psychological solutions of how do we provide the right kind of reasoning framework for researchers, for scientists to be able to get to the most accurate inferences that they can. And so what we've started, the, the, you know, after this, alongside this reproducibility project of investigating replication and how findings can be reproduced. Our main activity is on the solutions. How can we do better? Science is vitally important. We're studying all these important problems that really need to be solved. How do we make that pursuit as efficient as possible to get to the solutions, the cures, the knowledge that we need to be more effective as individuals, as society? 
And so there are a few specific things that we have identified, and by we, I mean collectively. It's not just uh, me and my collaborators, but the research community has identified as uh, critical factors for improving credibility and robustness of research. One of those is a simple one, transparency. If there's possibility that my decision process along the way of doing the research of many studies only reporting a few, many analyses only reporting a few, if all of that is important for understanding the quality of the evidence at the end, then you should be able to see that process that I went through. What studies did I do? Which ones did I report? Why did I choose not to report the ones that I left out? I might have great reasons for that, but you should be able to know that I made those decisions and you as a reader, as another scientist, as anybody should be able to then evaluate whether those decisions have an impact on the credibility that you place on the results. And so one of our main activities is trying to change the culture and incentives to promote greater transparency of the research process, of the data that gets produced, of the findings that exist. And so for that, we have what's called the OSF. OSF.io is the website. It's a free infrastructure for researchers to be able to manage their research projects, to post all of their data, to register their studies so that they say, these are studies that I'm going to do, and to make that, when they're ready, make that publicly accessible for others to look at. So by doing that, we can increase transparency of the entire research process so that the credibility of the evidence can be evaluated based on what the researchers did along the way. A second solution that is a critical one for maximizing evidence credibility is called pre-registration. And the idea of pre-registration is to solve two problems. So what pre-registration does is if I'm planning to do a study, then I write down what it is I'm planning to do. Here's the study design. This is the questions that I'm asking. Here's the way I'm going to analyze the data. By writing all that down and then registering it, posting it to the OSF as a registration, this is a marking in the sand, a study I'm going to do, then that becomes discoverable. I can embargo it if I don't want others to know about it for some period of time. So I get you know a chance to be in front and, and do the study before others steal my great ideas. But eventually that will become public that I did that study. And so if I ultimately don't publish it, then you can find it and say, oh, well, what happened to that study that you said you were going to do? And so that will decrease this selective reporting uh, that happens in literature. The other function of pre-registration is to reduce that discretion that I have of how I'm going to analyze my data and what I'm going to report. And so because all of those choices can be made when I'm looking at the data for what it is I think I found that reduces the credibility of the statistical inferences, by pre-registering the study, I say in advance, what are the things that I'm actually testing hypotheses, the th reasons that I did the study in the first place, the things that I want to try to confirm or disconfirm uh, in the analysis. By saying those in advance before I see the data, those choices can't be influenced by the data. And as a consequence, that helps make the statistical inferences, this assessment of uncertainty, makes it much more diagnostic than it would be if I was looking at the data and making those choices as I was in the data itself. So pre-registration is a key solution by, by forcing me as a researcher to make my decisions about how I'm going to analyze the data before I see it. And then after the fact, once I've seen my data, then there's all kinds of exploration I can do in that data that's very useful, right? I, I might have been completely wrong in my initial hypothesis, 
and the data come out and it shows a totally different pattern than I expected. So what I typically will do the next is get into the data and try to figure out why is it that it happened that way? That exploratory mode of analysis is super important for discovery, right? For seeing things that we didn't expect, that we didn't design studies for, that we didn't know might be happening in the phenomenon. But simultaneously, that exploratory approach of getting into data after the fact is not good for statistical inference, for testing hypotheses, because I'm influenced by the data as I look at it. And all of that influence can change how it is I analyze the data, which can make it easier for me to fool myself, can ruin the, the diagnosticity of the uncertainty estimation. And so the value of pre-registration is to make it very, very clear when I'm in this hypothesis testing mode, when I'm using data to confront my initial hypotheses that I committed to in advance, Versus when I'm exploratory mode, I'm generating new hypotheses by looking at data that might then inspire the next study that I do in the future. And so these two efforts of transparency of the process and of data and a pre-registration commitment to designs uh, before I know the outcomes, those we think are the key things to try to promote in the research community to increase the quality of the research inferences that we get, the research that we do, so that we can get to cures and solutions and knowledge as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. So as individuals trying to use science and evidence to inform our decision-making and make smarter decisions, how can we apply these lessons to ourselves? It's a great question, one that I sort of toy with myself every day in terms of how I am a consumer of information in the world. And I think about both of these solutions that we talked about for scientists as potentially applicable to how it is we reason about evidence in everyday life. One is transparency. Can I expose to myself, even if it's not shared with others, what are the decision factors that I use to decide whether evidence is credible? What are the assumptions that I have going into particular things, right? If I'm thinking in terms of uh, healthy behaviors, right, do I have existing assumptions about what it is I think is the right way uh, to be healthy? What kinds of foods are healthier than others? What kinds of activities are more likely to make me healthy than others? If I can identify my existing assumptions, then that might help me to identify when it is I'm more likely to be pursuing confirmation bias, right? So I am very motivated to think that bacon cheese fries are actually healthy because I love bacon cheese fries. So if I know that assumption about myself, then I know that when I see two articles and one of them sings the glories of bacon cheese fries and the other one says this study finds that bacon cheese fries are the devil, then I, I know that I may be more likely to actually read the one that is consistent with my pre-existing beliefs and more likely to take it seriously. And by confronting that, by making it more transparent, my assumptions, then I might give myself more occasions to actually adopt a philosopher's stance, right? An idea of, let me actually look for evidence that could disconfirm my existing hypotheses about the world, right? And that's actually the more functional evidence for me because I already believe that bacon cheese fries are good for me. So what I really need to do is select opportunities to be evaluating evidence that might actually suggest to me that I need, I need to change that opinion rather than keep reinforcing and making me feel great about the opinions that I already have. So that's one uh, sort of general mindset approach. A second is trying to actually make explicit pre-registrations. Can I pre-commit to beliefs that I have? And more than what beliefs I have, 
how will I evaluate evidence about those beliefs? So if I hear that they are doing a study about a particular thing that I have a, a stake in, can I make a commitment to how it is I will interpret that information? What will I look at that evidence and then decide what to do with it? Does that pre-commitment make me more likely to follow through and change my beliefs if my beliefs are confronted with evidence that I don't like, uh, that is uncomfortable to me? And that's the biggest challenge of consuming evidence in everyday life is that we like to be right. <laughs> I don't like to see evidence that is inconsistent with my current point of view to have to change my mind because that's work. And I have this whole belief system that I'm trying to keep reinforced here. I don't want to be uh, having to try to wrestle with evidence that's inconsistent with that belief system. So that humility of knowing that we are wrong, our models of the world are wrong, and what we're trying to do is find evidence that helps improve the models of the world, and the willingness to actually confront ourselves with evidence that may be inconvenient are, if we can do it, the most effective ways to change our minds when they should be changed. So it's funny that both the ideas of kind of transparency and pre-registration to me both remind me of a, of a tool called a decision journal, which is a really effective kind of methodology of writing whenever you face a major decision in your life, kind of writing that down at the time and then going back and reviewing sort of your decisions in aggregate and sort of finding biases and, you know, things that you sort of consistently mispredicted or overestimated, et cetera. And so, yeah, that's great. Actually making those predictions explicit. I like that. That's a, that's a, a great illustration of pre-registration in practice. So what would be kind of one sort of action item or piece of homework that you would give to listeners so that they could kind of start concretely implementing some of the things we've talked about today? Oh, that's a good question. The one that I can think of immediately that is, that is easy to start with is to adopt a stance opposite of your current point of view for a moment, right? So the Abraham Lincoln's famous for creating a cabinet that's been referred to as a team of rivals, right? Where he deliberately selected people with different points of view with the assumption that he would arrive at better decisions by hearing all different points of view on how what to do on this particular problem. Now, you can't form a cabinet uh, for a lot of the decisions uh, that you need to make in your everyday life, but you can adopt that mindset of a team of rivals, which is, okay, I might have a point of view about this evidence, and I know as a human reasoner that most of the time I'm just going to look for evidence that's consistent with my current point of view. So perhaps for this decision that I think is important, I can deliberately adopt the opposing point of view, right? I think I should move to city X. I'm, I'm going to move to St. Louis because that's the next step in my life. All right. Well, for a moment, even though I already am sort of inclined to do that, let's go with and start with an assumption of I should not move to St. Louis and try to build a, a case for that position and then see what happens, right? What it can reveal is potentially are the assumptions that were underlying the decision that you had in the first place that may not have a strong evidence base to them. They may be just assumptions about different things or things that were inconsistent with why you wanted to do that. And so just the, that process of adopting a position and really pursuing evidence for that contrary position can be an effective way to help identify different factors that you might want to include in the actual decision-making process. And for listeners who want to find out more about you, about the Reproducibility Project, et cetera, where can they find you and your work online? So our organization is called the Center for Open Science, and that's at cos.io. That 
organization is a nonprofit that builds free open source tools to try to facilitate changes in the culture of, of science to make it more open and reproducible. It is a spin out of my laboratory at the University of Virginia where I'm on the faculty. And that infrastructure that I mentioned for anybody that is a researcher and wants to use it, it's called the OSF and that's at osf.io. And you can use the OSF for storing data, making it available, just managing it privately for projects. You can use it for uh, sharing preprints, scholarly works that aren't yet published, but you want to accelerate their availability. You can use it for registering studies if you want to say, here's the study design and try to increase the robustness of the research. So it's available free for researchers to use. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show, going deep into the science and sharing with us some really helpful and useful tools for how we can think more effectively about scientific data and how to integrate it into our lives. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.